0: Let's go be logical Christians. So I found this article, I read the headline, and then I read the article. Then I stopped and looked around to see if I was being punked. If you do a search for this, you'll find it all over the place, but looking through the normal news ribbons that I do, this one either never showed up or it was there and poof, gone. Found on Yahoo News, a headline, Fauci pushes for universal coronavirus vaccine. That's not really the shocker, as of course he does. That's all Lord Science has wanted to do for his entire career, to inject everyone with his salvation serum for anything. He just really wants to get everyone injected, for some reason. I'll let you speculate as to why that may be. The jaw-dropping comes in the body of the article. Here's the gist of it. Fauci and two other top federal researchers wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine that the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 will likely never be eliminated, and the current vaccines aren't able to stop new variants. Yeah, I know. My reaction was also, well, duh. Then they wrote that other coronaviruses will likely spill over from animals to humans as well. This, of course, will cause future pandemic threats. You know, if if other coronaviruses spill over from animals to humans, just like this one did, you know, spilled over. But never fear, Sir Science of Faucini has a solution. He and his colleagues say that the research world should fully commit to creating a second generation of vaccines that will work across many coronavirus forms. This sounds wonderful, magical, you say, how would they go about doing this, please tell us more. (laughs) Well, if you insist. They suggest that across the globe, researchers should collect animal coronavirus samples and then develop, quote, ethical challenge trials, or more simply put, test these on humans, you know, collect animal viruses and see what they do to humans, ethically. Now, the justification is that we've seen four deadly, deadly coronavirus outbreaks in recent history, twice with SARS, once with MERS, and now COVID-19. And look, I don't feel it's necessary at all to point out that MERS has racked up a grand total of 943 reported deaths worldwide since April 2012, and SARS, which showed up in early 2003, slaughtered 774 people, and hasn't been seen since 2004. I just don't see any reason why I would ever, ever mention that. We'll get to COVID-19 in just a moment. The article then spins into the abject failure of this concept. For the last decade, they've been trying to develop a universal flu vaccine. Some trials begin in 2019. Looking around, we don't have anything yet. And of course, they have to say that the emergence from the space bridge of the evil Decepticon Omicron in search of victims and likely Energon cubes has compromised the, you you gotta say this without laughing, the level of protection offered by available vaccines. Okay, so now because of that, we need to really get moving on a universal vaccine. At this point, they dive into the meat of the concept. Fauci and his two colleagues, Dr. David Morens and Dr. Jeffrey Taubenberger, which I'm just going to say is a fantastic last name, they all work for the NIAID, yes, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the one that Fauci is getting paid over $400,000 per year to run. They say that they want a global effort to collect samples from animals such as, uh, such as, such as bats and palm civets and raccoon dogs, which as the article says, quote, are frequent hosts or reservoirs of coronaviruses that could jump to people, end quote. They could then analyze these coronaviruses and see what commonalities there are and so on. The article goes on to say, quote, testing universal vaccines in human challenge studies will be important too, the authors argue, that type of research could accelerate vaccine development, but it's ethically complicated because it involves intentionally infecting people to test a vaccine. They temper this with saying, maybe they could engineer it to only manifest as a cold because, I mean, look, we've done this with the flu virus before. We know what we're doing. Just, you know, just trust us. They admit that this process could take a number of years and it may turn out where we need multiple vaccines, one for each family of coronavirus, whatever that means. The author of the article goes on to obliviously say, quote, Collecting viral samples from bat caves, animal markets, and people who interact with these creatures requires a lot of work and needs strong biosafety precautions to ensure the virus can't accidentally jump to humans. And then there's another, I guess, expert, Pablo Penaloza McMaster, a viral immunologist and assistant professor at Northwestern University. He added that, quote, you have people going into the caves where bats are. You don't want spillovers, end quote. Okay, can we stop here for a moment? Let's stop here for a moment, shall we? Is it just me? Am I in fact being punked? After two years of denying and outright lying, including to Congress, we finally have documentation showing that Fauci, I refuse to use the title doctor with this guy, did in fact authorize gain-of-function research. He can call it whatever he wants, but he was authorizing and funding the Wuhan lab to find and extract coronaviruses from animals and genetically modify them so they can jump to humans, so we can study them, so we could create a vaccine to stop them when they jump to humans, if that were to ever happen, which it never has until we engineered it to do that thing And now we have an agreed-upon number of over 5.5 million deaths because of it, and a vaccine that is neither safe, nor effective, nor a vaccine, by any reasonable definition of any of those words. And now Fauci and his ilk want to do the same flipping thing again? And why? Because these viruses are playing hopscotch between animals and humans? Nope. Because maybe, maybe one could jump to a human. Let's take for granted that SARS and MERS jumped from animal to human naturally. I'm sorry, but a total of less than 2,000 deaths from these three outbreaks combined, that's not even a blip on the death radar, the, the death dar. I just have to ask Fauci, do you want to kill the world? Because this is how you kill the world. Maybe, and hear me out, maybe we just don't dabble in God's domain, Hmm. God designed this creation, animals and humans. He designed viruses. These viruses must have served a purpose for good originally in their original forms, because on day seven, God stopped creating and said that his entire creation was very good. Now, I know with sin, things have changed. Death and disease have entered the creation. Viruses can harm or kill us. But how about instead of trying to engineer the virus to force it to jump to a human, you know, to see what happens... So we can make a vaccine, patent it, and make a ton of money when the virus somehow, somehow escapes the lab. How about we just don't do those things? Let's spend our millions and billions of tax dollars on, frankly, just about anything else. Off the top of my head, transgender monkeys, for instance. Oh, oh, see the show notes. Yes, that's a real thing our tax dollars went for also. Just look it up. What do you say? Well, let's move into a terrifying dystopian science discovery, shall we? I found an article on the website wattsupwiththat.com. You know, watts, as in W-A-T-T-S, the unit of power, watts. It's a website that they self-describe as the world's most viewed site on global warming and climate change. It appears to be a climate change debunking site, not a climate change alarmist site. I found an article that caught my attention entitled "Swiss Researchers Use Brain Electrodes to Stimulate Climate Concern." Oh, okay. Well, like I said, this is kind of terrifying sounding, especially when you see the picture the guy chose for his write-up—a man in a skull cap full of electrodes. You will worry about the climate—that sort of a thing. If you've ever read the book *1984*. I don't think the process I'll go over in a moment is terribly far from a technologically advanced form of the rat face cage. If you've never read 1984, you should read 1984. Not at night, though. Anyway, the gist of the article and the experiment carried out is very simple. They attach electrodes to the skull to stimulate the TPJ, the temporo-parietal junction, to induce a feeling of sympathy for future generations by helping the subject mentalize those coming after him or her. I have a link for a description of the TPJ in the notes. I'm not a brain scientist. It's kind of a processing center where thoughts and emotions flow to. Researchers at the University of Bern in Switzerland attached electrodes to the skull and conducted two experiments with two different forms of high-definition transcranial direct current stimulation, or, you know, HDTDCS to you and I. One form they classify as excitatory, the other form they term inhibitory. They found that when given scenarios, the subjects were more likely to make sustainable decisions, despite the cost, despite what others may do, when one form of HDTDCS was applied, as opposed to no change from normal behavior with the other form. Clearly, I don't want to get very deep into the technical weeds here, because I can't, but I do have some links that you can follow if you just really want to learn some more. This is the basic idea, though. If you zap a certain area of the brain the right way, it'll move people toward making decisions defined as sustainable, essentially with tunnel vision, disregarding any other effects that may occur because of that decision. That's what I get from it. The researchers conclude their abstract with, "quote our results could inspire targeted interventions tackling the TPJ and give neuroscientific support to theories on how to construct public campaigns addressing sustainability issues. Ah, wonderful. So why are they doing this? Well, it's because, as we all know, the planet is burning up and nobody cares. Now they phrase it a bit more sciencey in their setup for this little experiment. They say, quote, when it comes to climate friendly behavior, there's often a gap between what we want and what we actually do. Although most people want to see climate change slow down, many do not behave in an appropriately sustainable way. And they go on to say While many people acknowledge the urgency to drastically change our consumption patterns to mitigate climate change, most people fail to live sustainably. We hypothesize that a lack of sustainability stems from insufficient intergenerational mentalizing, i.e. taking the perspective of people in the future. So the theory is that we all care and we all know that the climate is under attack and we all know that we must do something about it. But because we're self-absorbed and we don't actually know these people that are coming after us, we just go on with our silly little climate eviscerating lives. Now, the researchers do admit that we can't just apply brain stimulation to the general public, but through meditation and neurofeedback, it's possible that the same basic thing could be accomplished. Now, the author of the article goes on with laying out some possible scenarios. And remember, he's doing this from a standpoint of, we maybe should stop this. So some of the scenarios are, one, the idea of using implanted electrodes in the skulls of criminals to reform them has been around for a while. Why couldn't we do this to the general public? Two, using neurofeedback, which is basically a monitoring of your brain and then a reset of the brain through external stimuli to stop the bad brain behavior, say that three times fast, and reinforce the good brain behavior. So he says, using neurofeedback, the brain could be trained to think and feel a certain way. Yeah. Three, drugs or propaganda could be used to train or trick the brain. I think that's probably being done now, really. I don't know. Four, maybe something to affect this part of the brain could be slipped into depression meds or some other widely used medication. And five, five, He even is a little skeptical on this one. There's some links. You can look it up. I don't know. There's apparently some data that shows some magic mushroom hallucinogen psilocybin, I think, that apparently will turn conservatives into liberals. So, you know, that's why I don't order my pizza with mushrooms on it. Mushrooms are gross. Anyway. So there are some possible scenarios, uh, just some potential ones, right? And at this point, with the climate hysteria and the obvious government grasp for control, would you be surprised by any of these? So let's look at some of the assumptions, some of the leaps of logic that these researchers have made. One, they assume that most people are worried about the climate and want action taken. That's literally contrary to polling data year after year, election after election, at least in the United States, where the topic of climate ranks relatively low with great consistency. Two, they assume that climate is changing, specifically that the planet is warming. Okay, so this one is contentious. You can find very, very solid data. And I put that in quotes. As I've always said, give me a set of data and I can give you 10 different conclusions all will be correct, and all will be contradictory. Anything can be manipulated with a set of data, if you're less than honest. But you can find data on both sides of the argument. Now, the fear-mongering claims that people like Al Gore, you remember him, he created the internet, his claims of the hockey stick graph, and James Hansen of NASA, who makes prediction after prediction as he compiles a list of failed predictions, These type of people have been debunked for the most part, and generally, I don't know that anyone takes them overly seriously anymore. But is the planet warming? Maybe. Now, the magic number of death and annihilation, as given to us by a very wealthy private jet mansion on the coast living elitists, is 1.5 degrees C increase. Once we hit that rise, it's all over. And we're somewhere around 1.2 degrees C right now, so they tell us. So, you know, it's time to panic. Let me just ask this. As we want to look at this logically, don't we? How do we know the correct temperature of the planet? Forty or fifty years ago, we were afraid we were heading into another ice age. Now, as if by magic, we're headed for heat death. So what is the correct temperature of the planet? I have never been able to get an answer to this question. What our wisest of wise men, remember Homo sapiens sapien, have determined is that the temperature of the planet is now, well, not now, but 1.2 degrees C ago, is the right temperature. But what they're actually saying is that it's the temperature they're used to, and that we designed our life around, more or less, and frankly, we just don't want it to change. We don't feel as if we should have to adapt, except for adapting everything to keep it at that one specific temperature i would commend you to go to answers in genesis and do some researching on the climate and the effects of the flood of noah's day they have some very compelling arguments that what we're seeing is still a slow gradual warming from the ice age retreating that was brought on as an after effect of the flood now the way i see it again just trying to look at this logically Everything in creation that we know of vibrates. Everything has a natural frequency. This is why you can shatter a wine glass if you hit the right sound pitch. You send the natural frequency of the glass out of control. This is what happened with the wind blowing across the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. The only time we stop something from vibrating is when you hit absolute zero and the atoms freeze in place. So if everything has a frequency, why not the planet? And Why not the temperature of the planet? I think the logical conclusion to rising temperatures due to heat being put out by the oceans, which are massive heat sinks, and the sun, is that the planet temperature is oscillating up, and at some point, probably soon, the temperature will start to go back down, and up and down on however many decades the cycle is. Maybe given long enough, the planet would actually reach a steady state temperature, where the temperature will no longer change, and then we'll know that the right temperature of the planet is X degrees. But until then, we're chasing the wind. Number three, they're assuming that climate is more important than anything, or nay, shall I say, everything else. To me, if we were going to jack around with the brain to create a heightened sense of sympathy for some cause... I'd look at the plight of the poor or the needy, maybe children, maybe abortion. Just go to your local church. They have an endless list of needs and charities. There's practically infinity other causes that would come light years in front of climate. I know, my opinion. But really, when you look at the polling, it's the opinion of the majority of the people as well. Number four, they're assuming that people don't care more about the climate, because they simply can't imagine the future generations, including their own family line, and the hellscape they're making for them today. And if that's the case, can we order about 600 of these skullcap zappy things and attach them, you know, to the heads of our elected federal officials, because they clearly don't care about the wake of destruction that they're leaving behind their hearse. Now look, I think this is a large assumption, as I do care about those coming after me. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We're commanded to care for our families, and if all we're doing is stripping this planet bare and making the atmosphere unbreathable, how are we fulfilling that command? Part of providing for our families is to provide a planet for them to exist on. Christians and humans in general who who have an inherent sense of morals because God wrote them on the hearts of everyone, we know that we need to provide for our families. I think this is another really large assumption that could never and would never be backed up with actual data. And five, and probably the second largest assumption they make, next to the point that they seem to know the correct temperature of the planet, is that not only is our current warming man-caused, but the only way to fix it must also come from man. This idea, this arrogance, is unbelievably frustrating to a person with a logical and a Christian mind. I mean, practically, we look back through history and we can literally test for levels of greenhouse gases, and we know that the levels have, ready for it, cycled up and down. Long before Henry Ford unleashed his smoke-belching death machines on the planet, there are clear indications through historical records and real science that the planet has gone through warming and cooling periods in the past, in the long past, well before I required a coal-fired power plant to charge up my Tesla so I can save the earth from the ravage of fossil fuels. But the biggest issue in both climate and And this research specifically on how to force the brain to be more climate-sympathetic is that we've totally disconnected from the omnipotent and sovereign designer and sustainer of this planet. John 1 tells us, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men." The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus made this entire creation. Jesus is sustaining by his sheer will, his sheer being, this entire creation. He wasn't surprised by fossil fuels. He ordained them. He wasn't surprised by cars. He ordained them. He isn't shocked that the temperature goes up or down. He designed the entire system to self-regulate. As I've said before, we are stewards of the planet. We are charged with taking care of it, but we are also charged with filling it up and using it. This is why the processes of the planet work the way they do, because the planet needs to be able to constantly cleanse and refresh itself for our benefit, by design. Furthermore, God created us He knit us together in our mother's womb. He watched us being formed from the very beginning. I don't know that we should start to toy with the brain just to help along a political agenda. It almost seems foolish. This is the kind of lunacy that happens when we abandon God and rely on our own understanding. So from a logical and a Christian viewpoint, when you start with the wrong assumptions, when you place God on a shelf or in the corner or in the dumpster, the conclusion you reach based on your analysis of the data will always be biased and will always be wrong, or at the very least will be done with the wrong motives. One of our jobs is to point out the illogical assumptions and incorrect analyses so that the incorrect actions aren't taken. Unfortunately, it often seems that there are many, many more of them than there are of us. Nevertheless, that should not detour us from speaking up and being bold, as we are the holders of true truth and all logical logic. Well, thank God. Literally, thank the creator of heaven and earth, plants and animals, male and female. Well, let's just hold up a tick here. Per pinknews.co.uk. Oh man, my algorithm-based suggestions are going to be fun for a while here. Headline, putting Britain to shame. Canada stamps out conversion therapy for good as ban goes into effect. Let's take a look at this bundle of good news, shall we? So Canada has banned all forms of what has been incorrectly, in my opinion, termed conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is defined in this article as, quote, a dangerous medical and spiritual practice debunked by every mainstream medical and mental health body, including the Canadian Psychological Association, end quote. According to the bill, Canadian Bill C-4, which we'll get into in a little bit, defines it as a, quote, practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. Wow. And honestly, looking at the two definitions, I don't know which definition is more terrifying. Just from that alone... You should start having questions form in your mind that pertains to the illogical nature of this bill. So let's continue on with the article first before we get into the bill a little bit. They give some very basic specifics about the law, stating that the law will, quote, now slap those who force someone into conversion therapy with up to five years imprisonment, end quote. And that if you even try to take a child out of the country to pursue some therapy, or if you profit or even promote therapy, you have two years of prison waiting for you. Of course, old Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the person that seems to be tripping over himself trying to get as far left and as woke as he possibly can, is pleased as rainbow punch with this law making this, quote, hateful and harmful practice, end quote, illegal. Then they give some... Eh, let's just say, shocking statistics. You may want to hide your children here. They state, quote, the urgency of outlawing conversion therapy has been long known to activists. After all, at least one in ten trans and non-binary Canadians have undergone the practice, a harrowing 2019 report by trans Pulse Canada found, end quote. Okay, stop. So one in 10, 10% of this community has gone through conversion therapy, and that makes it urgent, and it doesn't say how many converted, or how many were forced, or how many sought it of their own free will. See, the problem isn't forced, the problem is the attack of this feeling, maybe we can say for now. This confusion must not be questioned. Actually, when you look into the statistics, it doesn't appear that conversion therapy is very successful at all. I guess it depends on who's reporting the data, however. According to religioustolerance.org, they found, after culling through some studies and anecdotal evidence, the conversion therapy fails approximately 99.5% of the time. Now, I'm sure there are many, many factors that go into this, but if this number is even remotely close, what is this community afraid of? Like I said, it's only that this identity must not be questioned. All right, well, let's continue on. After praising the Canadian government, in which both chambers passed the bill unanimously, both conservatives and liberals, if you can believe that, the lamenting of the fact that Britain is now falling behind begins. Apparently, last year, they tried to bring a bill banning conversion therapy to Parliament, but... Quote, the long sought ban offered by ministers last year will allow some forms of faith based conversion therapy to go ahead, among other alarming red flags, activists warn. But far be it for us to leave on a sour note about Britain's hatred of humans. This article ends with a positive story of one Michael Quagg. They say Quagg's family forced him to undergo a course of telephone conversion therapy with a Christian counselor. It was an experience that left him deeply rattled, and he even tried to take his own life as a result. But now, now that that bill has been made law, they can move forward as a country to continue to get rid of the anti-LGBT+, I thought it was supposed to be LGBTQIA2+, So I'm instantly offended by this article. <clears throat> Get rid of all the anti-LGBT plus hatred. Quag says, quote, as much as we need to rid our society of bad actors peddling harmful and fraudulent ideas, we also need to push for policies and initiatives that will create the affirming communities that we know queer and trans people need to thrive. That will provide alternatives rooted in love and acceptance to families like mine, end quote. Okay, where do we start here? Let's start with the name. The left is very good at crafting names. Abortion, remember, is pro-choice. That implies that the pro-life side is anti-choice. In this case, this kind of therapy has two names, conversion and reparative, but you won't typically find the opponents using the term reparative because that implies that something is broken and needs to be fixed back to what it was designed as. Whereas conversion implies something is being changed from what it is. And when you look at the overview of the bill, that's exactly what they've defined conversion as. They're starting from the worldview that the individual that's questioning the sex assigned at birth, or as most of us in the world call it, their biological gender, is actually anything but what they were born as per their chromosomes. So, from that standpoint, you get these qualifications in the bill. Now, some I listed a moment ago, some I didn't. I'll go over these again here. So, conversion is changing someone to heterosexual, changing someone to cisgender, changing someone to identify as the sex they were born as. It's repressing someone's non-heterosexual desires or behaviors. It's repressing someone's non-cisgender view. It's repressing someone's view that they're not the sex they were born as. It goes on further, though. Conversion is not assisting someone going through gender transition. It's not assisting someone that's exploring or developing their own personal identity. And this applies to counselors, psychologists, even pastors. And with fines and even jail time looming, and I think we've seen in the COVID era that Canadian officials are not concerned with putting pastors behind bars, who in the right mind would start to help someone that's asking for help with the knowledge that if that person turns on you, you're done? Now, what you may find missing in the list above is anything that prohibits, say, a counselor or a teacher or, a, or, or even, sadly, a pastor from suggesting to someone that's not currently questioning anything, just wanting someone to talk through life issues that maybe they're oriented differently than they were born. You won't find anything that would penalize a business or media or social media from pushing even bullying people, and these days especially children, to try something different. But see, implied by the writing and by the language used is the thought that people who have a gender or sexual identity crisis of any stripe are in fact designed to be the atypical identity. Not the typical hetero that the vast majority of the world is. And what the vast majority of the world has always been. Now our main article also uses language that is specifically designed to evoke emotion, garner sympathy, and persuade the reader. For instance, we will slap those who force someone into conversion therapy. You can't subject a minor to conversion therapy. It's debunked by every mainstream medical and mental health body. Note the lack of any sources. It was urgent to outlaw this therapy. And one in ten have undergone this practice, according to a harrowing report. And on we go. Now, I realize that this is clearly an entirely biased reporting source. I get that. But even the bill has a style of slant, albeit more legalese, but it's in there. For instance, quote, the bill would discourage and denounce harmful practices and treatments that are based on myths and stereotypes about LGBTQ2 people. These include myths and stereotypes that the sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression of LGBTQ2 people are undesirable conditions that can or should be changed. So myths, stereotypes, harmful. But I found in that paragraph that the worst phrase was that can be changed. See what I mean? The bill is based off of the assumption, the worldview. That the person living atypically not only can live that way, but is that way. To convert them would be cruel. But is this the norm? Well, remember, we as Christians have a place we can go for true truth. The American Medical Association. Ah, no, I'm just kidding. The Bible, right? We've all heard the base proof text from Genesis 127. Quote, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this doesn't specifically say that the male and female must be attracted to each other, but one thing we know for sure, despite what we're being told these days, only biological women can have babies. In fact, and this may blow your mind, they can only have babies if a biological male is involved. More than just the natural fitment of the parts, the two components needed to create more little males and females the sperm and the egg, come one from a male, one from a female. Furthermore, the genetic code, the chromosomes, must come from a male and a female. We will never have two biological males or two biological females create offspring. They can wait for billions of years of evolution, in their worldview, and it will never happen. So we apparently need the two created beings to reproduce, But that still doesn't say that God isn't okay with same sex or different genders. So the next proof text usually moves into the law, right? Leviticus to stone those in homosexuality. But then the other side points out that you can also have problems when you wear certain fabrics or you eat shellfish and that you should stone your disobedient child. Of course, that's a blatant disregard to the three types of laws given in the Old Testament, moral, ceremonial, and civil. I've linked an article in the show notes that expands on this, but that's the Old Testament. Jesus never says anything about homosexuality, so it must be okay, right? That's not exactly true either. Now, he may have never used that specific word, but he definitely spoke about what marriage is. I've got a Got Questions article linked in the show notes as well uh, about that topic if you're interested. And despite the denials, sexual perversions, of which... Anything but marriage between a man and a woman qualify are mentioned throughout the New Testament. Case in point, we find in Romans 1 a scathing rebuke of us, of humankind. Paul is describing our abject and absolute rebellion against our God and, and what that brings about, starting in verse 24. It says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I'm not sure how much more clear we can make this. And then we get to the final and maybe the favorite argument when it comes to especially children these days. If you try to convert them, or if you just don't allow them to determine their own identity, their own pronouns, they'll be anxious, depressed, and potentially suicidal. You don't want that to happen, right? In fact, going back to the bill, it spells out the harms that it will now eliminate by being enforced as law. Those harms are, quote, distress, anxiety, depression, stigma, shame, negative self-image, a feeling of personal failure, difficulty sustaining relationships, sexual dysfunction, and having serious thoughts or plans of or attempting suicide. Therefore, uh, sorry, end quote. Now it's me again. Therefore, it's absolutely mean and harmful to even think about attempting conversion. And you'll probably just make this otherwise well adjusted and finally happy individual kill him or her or they self. But this isn't true either. Per the ADAA, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, they state that between 30 and 60 percent of LGBT people struggle with anxiety and depression, a rate that's one and a half to two and a half times higher than straight individuals. And according to one source, the Trevor Project, LGBTQ youth, 13 to 24, are four times more likely to consider, plan, and attempt suicide than their straight peers. Now we can go into all the reasons why. That's not for this forum right now, at least. But if conversion therapy is forced, forced on 10%, why are so many in that community well over the 10% anxious, depressed, or suicidal? It ain't from conversion therapy. The reality is we see the fruits of God giving us up, as Romans says. We are falling deeper and deeper into every kind of sin and depravity we can think of. And the farther we fall from God, from our creator, the more hopeless our lives become, the more futile our lives appear, and the more we just want the feelings to stop. On top of that, Satan and his demons are prowling around this planet, seething with hatred for God and for all of his image bearers. Anything they can do to convince us humans to pervert, ignore, or destroy God's laws and created order, ultimately destroying humans and dragging them to hell, they'll do it. Let's end on a positive note. Thankfully, we have an omnipotent and sovereign God. And although it's maybe impossible to understand this side of glory, God is sovereign in even this. And we know that all things are for God's glory. So we can pray for change, pray for a return to God in our personal lives as well as our governments. But as David always did in the Psalms, we can end with praise and worship to a God who is completely in control, and has the master plan for a world that's seemingly swirling deeper and deeper into the abyss. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined, as you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly I'll be using at LCPodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the Word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.